This is Laborwave Radio. Laborwave Radio is an independent podcast and it's sustained by our listeners that subscribe to our Patreon. So if you enjoy the show, please sign up for our Patreon. Based on the membership tier, you'll receive gifts from us, including stickers, original illustrated zines, and our Laborwave t shirts. Our episode today is a really fun one. We get to imagine a scenario of organizing a fictional workplace. And since I had so much fun recording this episode, I wanted to make an open invitation to any of our listeners. If you have a workplace from a TV show or a movie or even a graphic novel, comic book series, whatever it might be, that you want to imagine unionizing, reach out to me at Labor Wave Radio. It's laborwavenews at gmail.com or any of our social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And tell me your idea. From there, we'll bring you on the show, record an episode, and put it out into the world. I also want to caveat this upcoming episode with the Imagine Union campaign was a campaign through the National Labor Relations Board, or the NLRB process. So the process is filing for an election and winning. And that's one path. It's not the only path, and that's not the only type of unionism that exists. So if you have an imagination that tries to build a different kind of union, I in particular encourage you to reach out and let's talk about how you would unionize this fictionalized workplace. We have future episodes on the power of reclaiming the strike as a weapon of the working class, and we'll have more content every couple of weeks. And with that, we hope you enjoy this episode on unionizing the office. Elizabeth Lasak, welcome to Labor Wave. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. So we have a fun episode planned today. We're going to be talking about how to unionize the office, the American version, mm-hmm. not the British. And this is something that apparently you do a lot in your spare time is think through different union campaigns in television show scenarios, or I imagine movie scenarios too. What are some of the other ones other than The Office that you've thought about? Well, I mean, it's I think it's all like under the like same writers, of course, because they set up a workplace so well that, you know, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Parks and Rec, um, even like Frasier, because they did have an episode where they also like, well, they had a union, um, but like how they were organizing to fight, they were losing raises that they were supposed to be getting. And so then I just think about like, they because they were arguing about who the leader should be. And they gave it to Fraser, right? Because he could speak well. <laughs> right. And they originally had the guy who was like the Star Trek fan, who his like primary negotiating tactic was fainting. So, and then like, you know, cheers, especially because I, I worked in the restaurant industry for a while. Um, and it is a, an extremely difficult place to, to ever fathom unionizing because they're all pitted against each other. And you see that in these like, different restaurant TV shows. Yeah. And cheers. I mean, Carla and oh, I'm forgetting Shelly Duvall's character's name, even though she's like the best. Diane. Friend. 
Diane. <laughs> They're at each other's throats all the time. Each other, yes. Sam Malone is like the biggest sexual harasser in the world. Yes. Watching it like now, it does not hold up. It is a lot of it is very offensive. And he even like he hit Diane at one point. He like punched her. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When they're breaking up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she she hit him quite a bit too, but it was still like weird. He was he's the owner. He was the boss. <laughs> yeah. Well, the office is a similar environment in that it's incredibly toxic mm-hmm. and probably the world's worst boss. Mm-hmm. So I guess I thought what we should do is imagine that we are new employees of the office. So we enter this work environment. And for our listeners, we discussed before we start recording that we're only going to talk about like the first four seasons. You know, we're not trying to get into the whole series because after a while, the characters change so much that they're not even the same people anymore. But we're just talking about the early years. So we're new employees there and we see all these problems in the workplace. And we decide we should really start getting these coworkers together and united in a common cause. What do you think would be the first step organizing the office? So we also talked about, um, you know, prior to recording this, that we should rewatch the episode where uh, the warehouse workers talk about unionizing. Um, And so I would have to say the first step, honestly, is telling everybody that this needs to stay (laughs) um, secret and we can't tell management until we have majority of support. Right. Because the first thing they do is tell Michael. And then Michael runs right to Jan. Right. And I think, you know, a lot of people like to think, especially with somebody like Michael, too, who seems like he's your buddy. They're still, you know, beholden to other people (laughs) Um, in one way or another, perhaps romantically even. Um, So, yeah, absolutely. Let's keep this private. Let's keep some down low, have some confidential conversations with people to gauge where they stand. But also the most important part is identifying a leader, especially if you and I were new here. Nobody really likes when new folks come into a place and and say that maybe we need a union, maybe we need to change things. There's something wrong with the way you're doing things. Instead, it becomes like a like seniority conflict. So actually like talking to people to find out who they respect and look up to. Yeah. So so social mapping would be in order, like right off the bat. Before we go to the social mapping, I do want to just remark on what you're saying about Michael and that. I've seen this from other workers where they feel like they have a sympathetic boss, like an immediate supervisor that's nice, that's friendly to them, even though we've, Michael is complicated because he's actually terrible. But at the same time, he's got like a soft heart and people, Mm -hmm. you kind of find yourself sympathetic to him as a character. They think, you know, Daryl goes out of his way to immediately just say like, are you on our side, Michael? And like recruit him into the cause. And then he goes to Jan. And one of the first things he says to Jan is, you know, the warehouse workers are talking about unionizing and they make some really good points. <laughs> so, so he is kind of like on their side at first. Um, but like you said, he's, he's a manager. He's got a function and his job is to repress and divide and conquer. But I've seen that mistake a lot. And people assume, hey, this one supervisor, this one manager, I think they'd actually be supportive of a union. And I have to talk to people about that. So when you get like workers that have that sentiment, that believe that they can probably convert some of their own management to be on their side. How do you address that? Yeah, we have that, um, you know, I'm, I'm organizing uh, faculty at the University of Pittsburgh. And often their first response is, uh, if they don't know really anything about a union, and this is a new conversation for them, their response is, well, let me ask my chair what they think. 
<laughs> no, please don't do that. Um, no, I think it's, um, you have to kind of frame, and this takes training too. Um, you need to be framing the conversation for, you know, where are the issues and you need to constantly be directing it back to, especially in a place like the office where they all like fight each other. If you're talking to somebody like Angela, it was everybody's stupid. That's why there's problems. <laughs> um, it's like, well, what created this situation? Getting them to see that it is coming from the top down to them. So with social mapping, for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with social mapping, one of the first things you want to do is not just a social map, but also like a workplace map of your work environment. So if we're in the office, we know the layout because the show is very like contained and familiar. It's just a bunch of cubicles. There's a little annex, only Toby and uh, Kelly work in the annex. It would be so easy to map that place. (laughs) (laughs) You even know where the restrooms are. They're like right there, the water cooler. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then you have like a warehouse that seems big, but I guess they don't have much of a workforce in that warehouse. It's not a very big workforce. Mm-hmm. So you want to physically map it out. And one of the goals of that is to just identify that talking about unionizing on the job is not ideal. Do you have any other things to add to that insight? No, I think, um, do you mean like actually like, oh, like the spaces where folks could be talking, it would definitely be like uh we need to go to the the places that we visit after hours. Um, what is the name of the bar that they go to? They usually go to like Cooper's. Well, Cooper's, yes, the the fish place. What's the other one though? Mm, I'm I'm blanking. I've been there. I've I've <laughs> I was unionizing nurses in Scranton for a while, and it's in a bowling alley. Hmm. Um, it's where they watch the airing of their commercial. Poor Richards. Oh, I didn't I didn't realize that was a real place. And it is a real place. And they sell office merchandise there, but it is like a, like a really small, like hometown bar. I would definitely, it seems like Cooper's is where they go to have like their fancy work dinners. <laughs> and so I would probably like have a get together at Poor Richards and talk to people. Certainly all these folks know each other's phone numbers. They probably know where each other, where everybody lives. Um, you know, having like, like first phone calls and one-on-one conversations is always the best too. And so then social mapping would be identifying people by name, by department, by title, and by shift, if there's different shifts, and also their relationships to each other. So that's where it gets really juicy with the office, because there's a lot of... Oh, and they love to gossip. So you would find out everything in these one-on-one conversations at the bar. Yeah. So what are some of the important social relationships in the office, you think, that like come to mind immediately? Well, it's definitely the romantic relationships, right? Um, and especially because they like to keep them secret, but they're not, <laughs> um, but you know, like, so like in my, you know, watching the office and assessing everybody, it was definitely dependent on, you know, those people's relationships. So like Pam and Jim, like Pam's going to do whatever Jim says, Pam is Jim's follower, you know, even like so much as like Phyllis and Bob Vance is important to know, like Bob Vance is, doesn't work there, but he is a boss. And then you know, Ryan and Kelly, but also, you know, it's good to know who hates each other too. But I think, and it does, I feel like a lot of my memory is kind of muddied too, because, you know, in the later years, they all come together and it's like, well, we all do care each other, care about each other, look, look, look after each other. But um, in those first couple of years, I think it was a little bit more adversarial. Um, Definitely like Dwight wants to get ahead of everybody. Um, I think if you talk to anybody, the first thing they would say is like, do not talk to, <laughs> to Dwight. Um, and Dwight is the henchman of Michael too. Yeah. And it would be like really important. Like, please don't share any of this with Dwight. 
I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it definitely kind of starts with those, like those very like romantic relationships. And then, you know, those ones of like, who's dependent on who like Dwight with, with Michael. So often in organizing, you have like an assessment scale. And for us, you know, assessments should come with concrete data. You should actually like talk to people, find out their issues, ask them to do something and make an assessment based on how they react, you know, whether they follow through. For our purposes, we can't do that. But you do have your own uh, mental ranking system. Do you want to talk about what the number system is and then where you think characters on The Office fall on that? Yeah, and it... um. And it was, I was just thinking because like, so with Angela, I would be, you know, she's somebody who needs a union so badly, <laughs> and, you know, she deals with so much from Michael um, and she's somebody that you would think Angela is definitely going to be opposed. Um, but I think Angela would absolutely be supportive if you had the right conversation with her and made sure that she didn't talk to Dwight. So Angela would be a two, which is a supporter. Um, and Dwight would definitely be a four, which means anti. Dwight sees himself as management. And I think that's something, you know, we have to be mindful of is that, you know, people who are gunning for management, people who want to be management someday do appreciate an imbalance of power. And that is kind of where it comes down to as far as like, you know, you might think that your manager is a nice person, but anybody who benefits from that imbalance is not going to be (laughs) supportive and you can't count on yes vote from them. Dwight also thinks of himself as a cop, not just as management, but also the police. There's that too. He's a cop. He's a he's a firefighter. He's a firefighter. Right. Yeah. Uh, very important to note that too. I would have loved to have seen like what they would have made his reaction in that episode on the warehouse is talking about unionizing. I'm I'm curious about that, but um, he's also a Nazi, isn't he? Yeah. Well, there's implications that he's a Nazi. It's like kind of hinted at at least his like ancestors were nazis so dwight's a four which <laughs> well, means he's anti Dwight's an anti he is a four um and also you know it is important that you know we always talk about in organizing that whenever you're doing like the final count you're you have to get out the vote the elections in two days anybody who's a three which is undecided is going to be a four which is anti um, so i try to keep my threes i'm very picky in my own organizing personally I try to make sure by the end of the conversation, I figure it out if they're yes or no. Um, so really the only three, the only undecided person I think would exist in the office is Andy. Um, and that is only because there are threes who just want you to keep coming back and talking to them. Um, and Andy would just love to hear himself talk and keep giving you, well, I thought about this. I need more information on this. You know, <laughs> it's always something. Andy also, he has a, he has a real about face and character. So he starts off basically like Dwight 2.0. He's a real like, right. you know, yes man. Bootlicker. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's a better word for it. He's a bootlicker. And <laughs> then he punches the wall and goes through anger management. And then he becomes like this person that you're talking about that just like genuinely wants everybody to like him. So he'd probably be a really polite three, somebody that would just very yeah. graciously talk to you forever but never actually commit. And he's also like a rich kid, right? Went to Cornell, had a rich family. I know that that doesn't mean that you're anti-union just because you're a rich kid. But it also depends on like, we were talking about identifying these leaders and the people that we want to be having those conversations. And, you know, I've definitely identified. And so a leader, somebody who's having these conversations is a one. And so I would think that Daryl would be the best one, right? I mean, he, 
you know, he's definitely very disgruntled um, in the, the first couple seasons, which doesn't always make the best leader because they're angry, but he does, you know, as his character grows as somebody that everybody loves, then he definitely brings together like the warehouse and the office. I think they both respect him. And so I definitely see if Daryl was asking Andy for support, Andy would probably say yes, just because he wants Daryl to be his friend. Mm-hmm. But then I think he would go and just still vote no, because it benefits him yeah. to not have a union, inevitably. Well, and Daryl is definitely one of the, he's a one, because he, in the episode that we were talking about, where they do try to unionize the warehouse, Daryl is the one calling for it, and apparently has already talked to people about it mm-hmm. prior. Like he says, this is what I'm telling y'all, if we had a union, this wouldn't happen. But also in that episode, you learned that Roy is the one that had the contact for the union staff for the dock workers union. So it was he like also... the Teamsters, I think. It oh, is like... it the Teamsters? I don't know, because they said truck drivers at the docks or something. Hmm. So some union card, Roy just has it on him, and he's the one that puts him in touch. So you could say at least Roy would be a two. I don't think you would want Roy to be one of your leaders, though, because he's super divisive and he's an asshole. You're definitely going to have union family that aren't the best people, but you know, you got to make it work. (laughs) We should return to that. I think that's really important to talk through like Mm -hmm. those problematic dynamics, but before doing that, let's, uh, let's get, let's get through this list. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Pam is, well, I guess I should probably say first, and this is the the thing that really like stirred up a lot of conflict on my Facebook when I first posted this like years ago is Jim is a four. And that is because he benefits so much from favoritism from his boss. He he's can get away with pretty much anything that, you know, he just screws around all day and he wouldn't see why. I mean, like, I think he has a lot of issues too, though, like with advancement opportunities and not liking where he's at. But I do think inevitably he would end up potentially being a leader for, for a no vote. And work himself into management by doing so. Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, he was so happy at the different opportunities to like go to David Wallace's house and play basketball with David Wallace. And even when he was a boss, he made like terrible decisions. He wanted to put everybody's birthday parties together. It was the only thing anybody liked <laughs> about working at the office was the birthday parties. So not even a good boss. And because of that, and I feel like Pam, as much as she would uh, benefit from a union and needs a union for protection from harassment and advancement paths as well um would probably like continue to like stay on the fence but would eventually vote no do you think her relationship with roy would influence her since roy would be a supporter yeah especially if it was you know i guess like in season three or four but if it was in season one or two she would because she would kind of do whatever he wanted like she wasn't going to go to art school because roy didn't want her to so if you actually asked her to vote yes for the union, then she would. If you get her at the right time. Yeah, I think she's she's a follower. So it is like identifying people's leaders. That's why it's so important. And the, the other ones, though, like Stanley absolutely would be a yes. Um, I mean, just kind of, he had a heart attack because he <laughs> needed a union. <laughs> and he hates Michael more than anybody. So much. <laughs> so now I think he absolutely needs a union and would benefit from one and would vote yes for one. Kevin would be, I think I had him as a three just because he's Kevin. Um, but but I bet he would vote yes. And then Angela would vote yes. Oscar would absolutely yes, 100 percent I do see like Oscar potentially like having some activist potential, but then you know he just tries to act like he's smarter than everybody else. So that would probably scare them away. Um, Oscar is like, 
easily become my favorite character on the show just because like he's just so real like it's just no so many people like him and I feel like he's very complex and Angela would would definitely vote yes if he had the right conversation with her and kept her away from Dwight um I don't think she'd ever do anything Dwight told her (laughs) yeah oh I had missed like on my my original assessment I missed Creed and somebody called me out on it and I was just like I have I honestly have no idea yeah Creed's a wild card he's a wild card yeah, he's definitely a wild card. I think his like 60s activist days might help influence him towards being a supporter, but that's kind of his character, right? You have no idea where this guy's coming from, where yep. his issues are. He does almost get fired, though. Uh, there's the episode where he almost gets fired and he somehow persuades Michael to fire the other guy. <laughs> so he's not really a team player in that moment, but he's been <laughs> on the chopping block. And there's he's other worried about job security 100%. Everybody there, I think. And those first couple, like those issues just pop up immediately, like in the first couple episodes that the job security, the working in, and in, in what is an increasingly paperless world. <laughs> <laughs> With Office Depot and the other giants yeah. like trying to like take us out of business. Yeah. You had Kelly down as a two, mm-hmm. Meredith as a two, mm-hmm. and then Ryan as a two or a three, and then Phyllis as a four. I think those are all the main characters. Now, I have to admit, I was really surprised by the Phyllis assessment. So why do you think she would be anti? I think I think she loves the, um, it just kind of comes down to her relationship with Bob Vance. She loves that like he's a boss. She thinks that that's like something that people should look up to and respect. She loves like flaunting the fact that, you know, he owns a business by saying his business, his name in unison with his name, <laughs> um, Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. And then I think that she also would definitely fall prey to the whole we are a family um, anti-union messaging. And I think that she does kind of look at Michael like a bit like a brother in some ways. Because they went to the same school and makes sense. I think that you could easily like there, there are ways. I mean, like maybe, you know, a very seasoned organizer could agitate enough around like the very real issues that she has um, a lot of harassment. And I mean, she was locked in a trunk i mean yeah so i like dwight being anti-union but at whatever point that election happened um you know if if dwight had left her in the middle of a a field somewhere to, to walk back so she could lose weight for the the weight check-in you know i feel like she'd be angry enough to vote vote yes um yeah but otherwise i think just consistently she's pro-management yeah ryan is probably another one that people might have differing opinions on mm-hmm. so you say that Ryan would be a supporter mainly because Michael harasses him all the time. Well, like if it's in those first couple of seasons, yeah. <laughs> he's just, I mean, he seems like less of a like horrible, like frat boy at those times. Like he's more like just trying to get by and wants to be able to get promoted. You know, he doesn't want to just be an intern anymore. And, he, you know, he's doing Michael's laundry. <laughs> he's... He's getting um, uh, sausage McMuffins at, like before the office hours even start for special projects. And he hates Dwight. But, he, you know, and especially like I think he he doesn't like Jim either. I think all of those people that are definite no votes in my mind, um, he, he doesn't like them. And he definitely, I mean, he does become management, but he gets so burned by management that, well, then he goes to jail. <laughs> he, he has a lot of other needs. Um, I think he would definitely be persuaded into voting yes. I think I agree with all your assessments. The one person that I'm like conflicted about is Angela. I, I don't know how much I think that she's a yes. 
just because she's so mean-spirited has this like dogmatic christian ethic you know that's very much about judgment and individual hard work and she's uh authoritarian to a core so i don't know i'm a little on the fence about angela yeah i think i got into an argument with folks about that on facebook too um and it like definitely opposed to solidarity of any form, right? <laughs> and, um, but again, I think she's just she's so miserable with her working conditions. And if you just agitate enough around the way Michael treats her, the way that you know, I mean, the, the issues with the copier, the issues with like their their resources and the things that she needs, like she actually does care about getting her job done well. And there are so many things that stand in the way. And if like she was able to actually have a say in what kind of resources they had and access to those resources and just making her job easier to do. Although I'm sure she would still be miserable in some way, but you could definitely convince her, I would think. Well, and she's also convinced that Michael is going to lead them to get downsized because he's such an incompetent manager and she's concerned about job security. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the next piece of this conversation is you've got your workplace map, you've got your social map, you've identified your leaders, your supporters, you're on the fence and your nose. Uh, your antis, you got to find out the issues too, right? So like what I often advise people is to figure out what are the most widely felt and deeply felt issues. So if we're talking about the office, particularly the first few seasons, what do you think the most widely and deeply felt issues are? It's definitely harassment, job security, discrimination, pay, and really like the job security and pay are primary. Um, I feel like they, the the harassment and discrimination, you would probably need to agitate around a bit. I mean, they're so clear, but it seems like they're just so, you know, I've worked in places and in, in environments before I've been harassed so often that it just becomes regular. And you're just like, well, this is just what it is. Um, and to actually talk to people like, you know, th- those conversations you're having as a union organizer and you're shocked for the person and they're like, wow, no, I didn't realize how bad that was until I saw how shocked you were when I said it. I think that was, is kind of what, what it would take. But I think if we asked people in those first couple seasons, it would be like, we think we're going to lose our jobs. I mean, you saw how upset people got, like whenever he was, he like brought Pam in and told her she was fired that one time and she started crying. You know, it's definitely something at the, the front of their minds. Yeah, I, I agree. Oh. oh, God. Health and safety. Health and safety. <laughs> and that was why the warehouse was was going to organize. Um, it was around health and safety. Daryl said... Like Michael said, what's your biggest, like, what's your biggest concern as a dude? And he was just like trying to like talk about girlfriends and stuff. And Daryl was like, health and safety. And you're putting that at risk right now. And there's an episode where Daryl is on crutches because Michael has injured him because he was being Mm -hmm. reckless in the warehouse. So Daryl really prioritizes that. I do agree with what you're saying about the harassment and that clearly on the show, there's a lot of moments on the show where you're like, how could they just accept Michael's behavior? Like, this guy is so off the wall, so over the top, so outlandish, so offensive. How is this possible that people would just watch? But I think you're right that they become accustomed to it. And the power dynamic is very stark. The manager is right there. He's an impulsive manager. He's deeply fragile ego, which I think is endemic to managers. (laughs) He needs to be liked and loved, but he also commands like authority over people. So they've clearly just gotten themselves into the situation where for years they've been subjected to this person's behavior and they probably don't see any end in sight. So how would you talk to them about that issue? 
Yeah. It, um, you know, just being like meeting them where they're at, you know, how does that make you feel? And actually getting folks to, to go back into their minds, thinking about how they felt at that moment and relive that experience. And, you know, does, does it have to continue to be this? Well, like who caused that, Michael? Why does Michael have this power to do this? Well, Jan lets him do it every once. He gets away with all of it. I guess maybe like even David Wallace too, for some reason, like they just let him do whatever he wants. What if you had a say in, in, in that? What if you had a say in, in creating a healthier environment where you're not harassed at work every day? You know, that that is possible. Uh, like a lot of people don't realize that. I think they just think that they have no control over these things that like aren't, you know, issues of, of raises and, and like contract agreements of like that just include dates and like healthcare benefits. Like you actually, a union is here to protect you from harassment. Well, the other thing I think we could add to the conversation with people is pointing out that Michael gets permission to do what he wants because his numbers are good. And he's always getting credit for having the best numbers in the branch where everybody else is struggling, he's succeeding. But it's clearly because the workforce he doesn't do anything like and he there's regular commentary on how he doesn't do any work. So the workers are the ones in the office doing all the work, making it effective, productive, you know, having good numbers. And Michael gets all the credit for it. And yeah, that's absolutely something you would bring up in bargaining too. like you were the reason that this happens um, and you can leverage that power. And then also just the fact of like, Instead of having like, like very legitimately, like, we're not talking about a comedy and you're talking about this actually happening in a real workplace. When you've been harassed by your boss, how does it feel to have to go talk to your boss alone about that? Nobody on earth wants to do that. But what if everybody here supported you in the process and you weren't alone and everybody else wrote statements about what they were experiencing too, because they've all felt it in some way that makes it a lot, a lot easier and a lot less scary too. I wonder what you think about the strategic viewpoint of having like a good villain for organizing campaigns. I, you know, I'll say it right off the bat. It's no surprise. I'm very much about class struggle. I actually think that rhetoric motivates people. I, I often get discouraged from using it in organizing, but it's, I think it's pretty clear when you talk about the haves and the have nots, people actually get invested in it. And Michael seems like he would be a great villain. Like, I would love to have a villain like Michael in real life to organize people against. But how, what do you think? Do you think that's a smart strategy or do you think that's a risky strategy? Doing that scares some people away too. If it becomes more adversarial, that can be problematic, but he would be so easy to villainize. It definitely, I mean, prior to like, like we were saying, like in the, those later years, he becomes more like a buddy and people care about him so much. Um, but in the earlier years, like people really hated him. Like if you watch those like first couple episodes, like they hate him. So yes, like in this situation, I think jumping onto that and really framing it as such and really bringing it up that like this is the cause and it is because he gets to just get away with whatever he wants. But he gets to, like you said, gets to get away with that because of the work that you do. So what about the problematic dynamics of some of your union supporters? I think that's something we said we wanted to return to. And uh, in particular, we're talking about like Roy, right? Roy's got connections to the union organizers. He's going to be a supporter, but Roy is very divisive. So as an organizer, how do you go about navigating those tensions and those difficult supporters? Yeah, especially like if you're if you have like a committee of folks who are meeting, who are out talking to their coworkers together. And a lot of these people especially if they are problematic, they tend to like want to be the face of the union too. 
Um, so it's really on, and this, this would take, you know, having a staff organizer, this is part of why it's so beneficial to um, have representation through a unionizing process is to be able to kind of delegate where the work goes. So I'd probably steer, steer Roy in the direction of like arrange these happy hours, the union happy hours. But then Daryl's the one leading those, those happy hours because we don't want Roy to be the face of the union. It's kind of like <laughs> putting them in a place so that they're kept busy, but they aren't um, the face of the union. Interesting. What if people say like, if he's involved, I'm not going to be involved. Mm-hmm. How would you handle that situation? Yeah, it is tough. And I, you're just, I keep thinking about kind of like the bigger picture of things. And when you actually are a union member and so you're in a contract with somebody who is bad and sometimes you have to have that person's back, but, or, you know, that person has actually hurt you. How do you, you know, file a grievance against a union sibling? That's just something that we haven't yet resolved. And we've talked about a lot, you know, a lot of the labor unions in this country talk about it and do trainings on it, on like how we address this. I know that the steelworkers in Canada um, have been working on this. So I think it is more like this person is problematic now and you don't really have a venue to resolve that. But if you take this path, we can actually work together to think about better ways um, to manage people like this. Yeah, I like that. I, I find myself similarly asking folks the question of who do you want to resolve your conflicts? You know, your management or your coworkers <laughs> together through like democratic mechanisms. And sometimes I think that lands. I don't think it always does. And there is a disciplinary process, right? Like, I mean, you still, so if he did come in and, you know, tried to punch Jim and then Dwight had to mace him. <laughs> um, He'd probably be disciplined. <laughs> There would still be a disciplinary process. It's not like the union's always going to have your back. Like it's, uh, you do something like that and you put your coworkers in danger, you're going to be held, held accountable. Well, so now I'm not really sure where we should go next in the conversation. I think so. We've established a foundation. You know, we know how we can utilize Michael as a villain for our purposes. We have a workplace map, a social map, identified our leaders and some of the key issues. What's the next step, you think? to moving this towards collective power? I think, you know, you have to do structure tests. So really like that's something that I think about a lot when I watch The Office is because we're talking about how people change so much through each episode. So like, how do you really know you have Angela's support? You know, so like doing something for visibility, but really, I mean, even before that, I just think that this group needs so much inoculation. Like you saw how like the warehouse was just totally shut down when Jan came and said she was going to fire everybody. So like first fully inoculating people, but then doing something for visibility, because as soon as they're visible, Jan's going to come and say that she's going to fire everybody and their top issue is job security. So just letting them know, Hey, what do you think she means when she says this? And then link it back to their issue of job security and that the union difference is the way to solve it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think it would, I'm I'm curious about how those different structure tests would go or like, you know, showing union support. I also feel like that's probably where we would get Andy involved too, because he would want to be a part of the cool group. <laughs> <laughs> People with their stickers or whatever. Yeah, I wonder what the creative kind of displays of union support would be on the office. You know, one place that you might be able to get Pam more linked in is tapping into her creative desires, you know, creative outlet. She makes the graphic design logo for the commercial that Michael creates. So there's possibility there, but what do you think? Are there like ideas that come to mind of like some kind of actions or (laughs) solidarity displays of the union support? I was, I was actually just thinking that, you know, 
we should probably do something around like the health and safety um, and like kind of just like being like, I don't know, like after Daryl broke his legs, like something in relation to that, like our employer is breaking our legs, <laughs> you know, like injuring us and keeping us, you know, from me. I don't know. I just like, can't come up with anything right now. <laughs> but, I think it's fair to acknowledge that this is the value of having a group effort because uh, when you tap into workers, <laughs> creative ideas, they really come up with some interesting stuff. So I imagine with this crew of folks, they probably come up with pretty funny logos, names, ideas, and actions. It is important to to mention, though, that a unionized office would not be worth watching or entertaining <laughs> um, because, yeah, there would not be the, the type of shenanigans that happen in a, in a unionized workplace. They would be safe. Um, people wouldn't be getting, you know, uh, hospitalized. I mean, Dwight might still be, because <laughs> you know, flying off in his car to save Michael from his burned foot on his farming grill. But yeah, I don't, you know, there wouldn't be the type of the things that Michael gets away with that we find so hilarious and we love to watch because they're those awkward moments um, wouldn't be happening after they're unionized. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we've laid like the foundation for a good campaign. How, what do you think the prospects for this campaign are? Is it winnable? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's just minimal threes or uh, well, really no threes, um, just a couple fours. So uh, definitely a majority of support. And, and I do think that that, you know, that's something that we talk about in, in all of our, anytime we think about unionizing complex workplaces, um, is, Hey, once we have to bargain, these people are still like the people who voted no are still going to be our union siblings. Then oftentimes like with the, the Carnegie museum, somebody who was very opposed to the union ended up being very supportive, you know, once after the vote. Um, so you can still get those people and bring them on. And I think when, when those antis see all the people who are supportive, they'll probably be less difficult. Well, one last question about that topic specifically is that these folks are going to be your union siblings. You have to bring them on board, even if they vote no. How much damage to the campaign do you think somebody like Jim could have? Because, you know, first off, we started talking about this online for our shared disdain for Jim. We both hate Jim. Uh, he is the worst character. He is an asshole. All he does is get off on like terrorizing his coworkers. And every now and then he has like a glimmer of like humanity and we're supposed to like him, whatever. I'm sure the actor is cool, but the character sucks. But like he is a charismatic individual on the show. People like him. What can that do to the campaign that he's the antis? And we talked about how, you know, identifying leaders is so important because leaders can make or break a campaign. And Jim is a leader, right? I mean, everybody looks up to him. He like said he's charismatic. I was just watching there was the Valentine's Day episode where they were they were asking, like, what are you gonna do with Valentine's Day? And and he said, Well, I'm just gonna have some of my friends over for poker and I'm gonna win because they're all idiots. You just call your friends idiots. Like <laughs> I think that if we like um I think a good organizer um, and a good volunteer, you know, worker organizer would be able to frame the conversation as like, is Jim, is Jim really such a good person? Like, look at these things that he says about his friends. But no, yeah, it could be detrimental if not handled appropriately. And I think also inoculating people against Jim would be important. But you also don't want to agitate him to become like really hostile. He might just possibly not become a leader if you don't agitate him. Yeah, that's the advice I give is just don't engage your fours, right? Leave them alone, isolate them, and don't feed them any information. 
And I don't see, yeah, I don't see him like stepping up to like lead like a huge anti-union movement, especially if we talk to everybody else before him somehow successfully. Um, and he sees that everybody else is supportive. He's going to not like rock the boat. He's just probably going to like help Michael do some like mean boss stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that was one thing I guess you have as the advantage is that his character is lazy, right? That's part of his appeal is that he doesn't care about his job uh, and he's just a lazy worker. So maybe he won't even care to have the energy to try to bust a union campaign. Yes. Well, I think this has been really fun. I'd like to talk about some of these other shows you mentioned. The Frasier episode, for folks that haven't seen it, is a pretty interesting episode on union organizing. Frasier successfully gets the the grunts, so to speak, the staffers, aligned with the high-paid talent, you know, the podcasters, the radio host, I guess it is, and uh, mm-hmm. and figures out their common ground and tells them, like, hey, if they come after the staff first, they're going to come after us next you know, um, so it's actually a pretty remarkable moment where Fraser is surprisingly progressive as a show. And then, of course, he starts sleeping with the boss and that's where the show changes. <laughs> but it was while he was sleeping with her that he still negotiated for a 4% raise for <laughs> right? that. Which, if only it was so easy. <laughs> but he did, like, he organized both the, the talent, right, and then the, the, the staff workers, both of them, just because it was the right thing to do. So folks should watch that episode. There's an episode on The Office where the warehouse workers try to organize a union. And the words out of Jan's mouth are verbatim what managers say at every company and every industry. And they also have a pizza party. (laughs) To make them happy. That's right. (laughs) To smooth over the wounds. Always a pizza party. But we've got a plan. And I think, you know, as two uh, new employees, we probably have a good shot at unionizing this workplace. Hell yeah. With that, I'd like to thank you for the time. It's been fun. And I hope that this was educational for our listeners too. Kind of seeing the early steps of a campaign and now you can do it in your workplace too. Thanks for joining us on Labor Wave and let's talk again soon. (laughs) Thanks.